for me, being physically active helps release a lot of energy. And what I re- learned is that I wake up with this energy every day. And if I don't use it, it can turn on me and go negative real quick. So I have to burn it. And when I do, I'm, I'm bright and I'm happy and like a volcano of joy <laughs> if I'm using it. Welcome to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. I am your host, Dr. Weta L. Brown. I inspire and promote movement. I explain how running adds to life from a mental wholeness aspect. How obstacles can be overcome in life to make it to your finish line. Welcome to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy, episode 43. Today... I have a special guest. He is another endurance athlete. He is a triathlete. He started in endurance sport as an adult at a turning point in his life. He grew up between Chicago and Los Angeles. He attended North Carolina Central University, another M, HBCU. All know not the best. Of course, it's FAMU. I'm a little biased. He ultimately received his PhD in biochemistry. He's active in his community in Houston, Texas, where he resides currently. He has successfully completed Ironman Florida and several other triathlons, although he's relatively new to the sport. Despite many obstacles, he continues to train, reach, and set many fitness and training goals. Welcome, Chris, to the show. Thanks for joining me today. All right. So first I want to ask, what got you into endurance sports? Oh, wow. I kind of fell into it on accident. Triathlon is, I don't have an athletic background. I did swimming in high school and early, you know, elementary school. I started swimming in a little local club in Chicago. I grew up in Chicago. I did that for a little bit and then I stopped, got tired and I fell into it. I was watching a commercial. There's a health, a health club chain here called Lifetime Fitness. I don't know how broad they are, but they had a commercial one day that said it showed a super sprint. You do an indoor triathlon, you know, swim around the pool. It's probably 300 yards. And I don't know how long the run was, maybe two miles or something and, and a bike. And I thought, oh, I could do that since I knew I could swim. I figured I could run and I could ride a bike. I've been out on a little bike playing around. And when I did it, I hadn't trained. I was out of shape, probably 40 years old. And my mind thought I was still 20, but my body shut it all down in the water. I mean, <laughs> felt like my lung collapsed. I could not believe it. And so that humbled me to the point where my ego says, no, nah, man, you got to get that. You got to go back and get that because because this is unacceptable. And I still didn't want to accept that I needed to train. So I tried a couple of sprint triathlons and failed miserably. The next one I did, I had a 1992 mountain bike. It was steel didn't know anything about maintenance. So I went out, it was in the hill country of, of like near, near Austin. And, um, my, it was about a 13 mile bike ride, mile three, I got a flat, didn't know how to change a tire, didn't have any tubes, anything with me. So I walked, I'm not a quitter. So I just walked for eight miles. Okay. Wow. <laughs> they let you and do that? They did. And, <laughs> um, the, the sag, the sag van came up right toward probably the last two miles and, and asked me what was up. He said he didn't have a tube, but he just had a bike in the back of the van. So he gave me that bike and took my bike, said I'll leave it at the finish line. And I I rode to the finish line and then I started running and I was last. And I saw one person in front of me and he was about probably 450 pounds, mm-hmm. five, two. I said, I am not going to let him beat me. 
I am not going to be last. <laughs> so I struggled through and maybe half a mile before the finish line, I caught him and beat him. You know, that was my my target. And from there, it kind of just built. So you got addicted after that, after the challenge, you'd be like, I got to do this again. <laughs> my ego. But those are not endurance. Those are sprints. And I got to a point where I just wasn't making progress. And I was feel I was going through a hard time in life. And I decided I needed something really hard. So I said, I'm going to do an Olympic triathlon. That seemed like, the, you know, impossible at the time to me. I couldn't run two miles without stopping. So I said, I'll do Olympic, but I'm going to do it right. I'll find a coach. And so I found a coach. I started doing that. So how did you find your coach? Was it difficult? How did you go about that process? And you just I just Google did some somebody? internet searches. I was looking for a coach and for triathlon groups, local okay. triathlon groups. So I, I looked up, found a couple of coaches, and I just called them and emailed and interviewed. Some never answered back. And then I just went, talked to him and tried to find somebody who would fit my style. I needed somebody who would cut through my bullshit because I, I I could make excuses. I could, you know, <laughs> convince myself, of, you know, of my own crap. And I needed somebody who could cut through that and just tell me what was real. And he did from, from day one. <laughs> he told me, I said, oh, this is my man. <laughs> and I, 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 st- I still work with him. And he, he, is he local? He's local, yeah. He humbles, but he's trained, you know, high level athletes as well as beginners. You know, it doesn't matter what your goals are. Just let him know and he'll he'll get you there. So your club, is your club like people he trains or is it a club Mm-mm. that you found separately? Mm-hmm. Okay. Just a club that's in, I live in a suburb of Houston. So there's a club that's uh, called Pearland Triathlon Racing Club and okay. happens to be a group of Ironmen mostly. And a lot of them are all world athletes. So they're all pretty high level. So mm-hmm. it's nice to have that that level of people surrounding me to to help okay. bring me up, you know, and, and motivate me and, and learn from them too. They have so much experience. They're good okay. people. Yeah. So I found the coach and, and I wanted to train to do the Olympic. And then again, I had a buddy that I was working with and who's done lots of Ironman. And I was telling him that I was training for the Olympic. And he says, Hey man, next year, I'm going to be down in Texas to do the, uh, the Texas Ironman. Why don't you do it with me? You can do it. And I was like, are you out of your damn mind? I'm trying to get to an Olympic in October. This is in, Jan- in March. What year was this? This was 2019, 2019. Yeah. So I was going to do 2020 Ironman. Well, I was going to do the 2019. It was a Halloween. It was, a, it was the Olympic. That was my goal, my, okay. what I call crazy goal. And uh, he just kept messing with me. He was pushing my buttons and he knew I was competitive. And about three weeks later, I talked to my wife. I said, you know, Tim was asking me about us, blah, 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 blah. And I talked to Johnny, my trainer. And I said, you think I could do it? He's like, oh, yeah, I'll get you ready. You got a year. I'll get you ready. And that was, that was it for him. And she said, ah, I was just waiting for you to bring it up. I knew Olympic was not going to be enough for you. She says, I was just waiting. I didn't know how long it was going to be until you brought it up. So I said, all right, I'll do it. And I figured I had to tell people and say it out loud. So I started telling people at work. I was embarrassed. Didn't think I could do it. Didn't know how I could do it. It mm-hmm. seemed like the most impossible thing. I said, set a big goal. I called it my ludicrous goal. You're ludicrous. Okay. My ludicrous goal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's how I got into it. And in and, and training, I just got out of this funk and discovered energy and happiness and that I could do things I didn't think I could do. And I, I got, again, addicted to it and a camaraderie with the people that were training. So that's a long answer for you. Well, that's good. You always say you love this, sh- this shit. I know you're yeah. on your Instagram yeah. post. I love this shit. What do you love the most about it? Or is it a number of things? You kind of explain some of the things that you, what do you, would you say you love the most about it? I love the discovery, the self-discovery the most. I am able to do things that I didn't think I could do. And uh, what comes along with that is I love the, the community of people 
the triathlon is an independent sport, as you know. You're, you've mm-hmm. done many, many triathlons. It's an independent sport, but you work together. You train together many times. And when you race, the camaraderie there is amazing. It's not people trying to undercut you because they want to beat you. They're trying to beat themselves. I mean, none of us are on the pro level, so we're all trying to beat ourselves. And that's a beautiful thing to have that camaraderie and try to beat yourself. I also love the way that I've changed and kind of grown through this endurance training has influenced the people around me in very positive ways. So I see the example that my son follows and the things that he does or tries to do after, you know, listening to me at home ramble on about things or seeing me every day get up and go do it and come back and not quit. I hear him say things. My wife does things that I knew she's really uncomfortable about or she was reluctant before Mm -hmm. she does them. And so I think that's a direct consequence of me facing things that scare me and moving towards it. I've learned to face fears and just charge at them. And and that's kind of like my compass. I realize now that if I want to do something or I think about something and I'm afraid, that's mm-hmm. almost my flag saying that's the direction you need to go. Mm-hmm. So what was the, the most scary part about doing an Ironman? Failing. The thought that I could not do it, not knowing how I could get there. Like I said, I, I was overweight. I was probably 45 pounds heavier than I am now. And I could not, I didn't know how to run well. So my trainer said he would describe me as, he said, you look like a dinosaur trying to run. (laughs) You know, he's helping me, but you know, it's it's step by step. He's like, yeah, you're bouncing up and down like a bunny and a dinosaur (laughs) mixed together. (laughs) He told you that? (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) He just laughed at me. But he also, you know, it's, it's the truth. I want to tell me the truth and we can have fun with it um, as long as I'm, you know, moving forward. You're not trying to tear me down. You're just giving me reality check and make it funny. So you can have all these big goals, but a lot of the times, or at least in the past, I would be afraid to think of something so big, not knowing how the hell I can get there. Yeah. This case, I didn't do that. I just said, this is what I want to do. I'll figure it out along the way. Yeah. And what happened is I learned so much along the way that it became, got to the point that I didn't even worry about finishing. I just loved the process. You love the process. I loved the process. I fell in love with the process. And when I got to the point where I was doing the Ironman, we can talk about that later, I was completely at ease. I was comfortable. I I knew I could do it. Um, I was just very grateful that I was there. And I was happy that I was there. I had done it. You actually, one of my greatest fears was the swimming, but you already knew how to swim. So I don't know if that, made you at ease because a lot of African-Americans don't know how to swim. If they do, it's not proficient because I took lessons as a child. But Yeah, and I, I know how hard that is. I mean, I see that in a lot of the athletes, I'd say in our circle and in the endurance world, particularly triathletes. They are great runners. A lot of them are great runners. They've got biking, but the, the swimming really is a hurdle for them. Or they start When you start later in life and you've built up fears from childhood, you have these obstacles to overcome. And I, I really feel for you and for folks that have to go through that. And, and it's, it's admirable that you push through it and you go. And I always want to like think about what can I do to kind of help that so mm-hmm. it doesn't persist. Because um, I like with my child, I had him in the water at three months. I said, he's going to know how to swim. He's going to be comfortable in the water. Well, he doesn't have to be a competitive swimmer, but he's, swimming is going to be like walking to him. And I think that's important. And it, I, what caused me to do that, we were walking on a vacation and he was walking, you know, had just begun walking on his own. 
And we were walking through by a pool and he just jumped in. Didn't know how to swim or anything. He just jumped in the pool on his own. And I was like, oh shit. <laughs> oh hell, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta teach him how to swim. He's gotta know how to swim just so he can survive. Cause he, he didn't know what to do. He just wanted to be in the water. Mm-hmm. He didn't know. He didn't know that to fear water. No, he didn't know to fear the water. So that woke me up. I said, okay. But I understand the importance of that. I love swimming. It's peaceful for me. I especially ocean swims. But on the other side, I am not a runner. I never developed, didn't learn how to run. And so it's a huge struggle for me. I'm stopping doing it, but I was describing myself. I'd say as a runner, when I'm in the race, I feel like a three-legged donkey at the Preakness. It's just so awkward. It, it just feels like I shouldn't it be it doing it. It doesn't feel natural. Well, after, not at all. To me, running after biking and swimming is different than just running anyway. Mm-hmm. Just because you have tired legs. It's just like... It's not even tired. I could be running fresh. It's just I have a mental block and then it doesn't feel good. So I'm changing the story, how I'm talking to myself about it um, so that I can get through that and not create more mental barriers for me, you know, as I learn to run and become a runner. You mentioned you hit a low point in your life and how um, this training and triathlon helped. Do you mind sharing what was going on? Yeah. So I... I was at a point where I had stopped working. I decided to stop working and do something on my own. So I was I was a real estate investor. I had been a real estate investor for many years. And I decided to open a, a brokerage, uh, partner up and, and offer services and do some financial stuff and uh, do some other businesses and be an entrepreneur. And I did that for a few years, but, you know, it's very hard. And there's some there were some really low times that uh, I wasn't prepared for. So the stress of that. And then the strain that was putting on my relationship with my wife was crushing me. So I decided to stop. I just got to the point where I felt like I need to make a decision that I can keep pushing and try to make this work, but I may destroy my marriage or focus on my family, my son and my wife, go back to work. And I missed, on top of that, I missed doing the science. So I'm a scientist by background and I really like doing science. It's just, it's my nature. So I was trying the, the business, but I didn't love waking up every day trying to make a deal. That just didn't, that didn't drive me. It became a burden, it became a burden. But because I'm committed at something, when I go for it, I was like, well, I can do it. I decided I was going to do it. So I'm just going to keep doing it till it works. I had to stop back and say, mm, that's not the best decision, buddy. You're not happy doing this. So I went back, but going back, stopping, I felt like I was quitting and I failed. And that just destroyed me emotionally so much more deeply than I thought. I got a little bit depressed and things were, were really hard for me. To, to readjust emotionally to having businesses that I quit, basically. They were doing poorly and I quit and I went back to work. That I started gaining weight and I traveled a lot for work. So I was drinking and, and socializing and I just mm-hmm. felt miserable. I felt miserable. So that's, that's where I was. And I got to a point where I saw a picture over Christmas where I was taking my son to a uh, the nutcracker and I was in a suit and the buttons were stretching out and the suit was the shirt was screaming. I was like, oh, this looks the horrible. shirt was screaming. The shirt was screaming like <laughs> <laughs> release me. <laughs> I'm too small. What are you lying to yourself? You, you know, that kind of thing. I was I was fat and mm-hmm. unhappy. So I saw the picture and it just said, hey, man, you're on the wrong track. You got to change this and you, you got to do it now. So that's when I started looking for a trainer. I said, I have to do something hard to cause me to focus my mind and my body. I must just make everything in alignment and just stop with the distractions or feeling, but don't have time to feel bad and pout and be a victim and, and sad. You get something to go for. That's why I call it ludicrous goal. It had to be big. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have time for anything else but to focus on that goal. 
And for me, it happened to be triathlon. I didn't know it was going to be triathlon mm-hmm, at the time. Uh-huh. What I chose and it worked. Did you at that time seek any professional therapy? Yeah, I did. I, I went and saw a therapist and was talking to the therapist and that was helping some, helping me think about how I framed life and how I, the stories I told to myself about what was going on. I was very hard on myself, but it, it wasn't enough. I needed something physical. For me, being physically active helps release a lot of energy. What I re- learned is that I'm, I wake up with this energy every day. And if I don't use it, it can turn on me and go negative real quick. So I have to burn it. And when I do, I'm, I'm bright and I'm happy and like a volcano of joy <laughs> if I'm using it. So, yeah. Yeah, it kind of helps you focus. It does. Or, or sometimes you focus too much or it helps you kind of relax. So it, mm-hmm. it's a double effect. Yeah, I think it's it's healthy for, for me. Uh, I have to use that energy. So you grew up in between Chicago and L.A.? I did. So did you go back and forth or was it like part of it in Chicago? Then you moved to L.A.? Or? My mom and dad divorced when I was young in Chicago. My mom moved to Los Angeles. So I lived with my dad and would see her on holidays and summers. And then I was doing very poorly, almost failed out of school in uh, my sophomore year of high school. So they moved me to Los Angeles mm-hmm. to live with my mom and get a change of environment. So I lived there for the last two years of high school. And then I finished up uh, there and, and I hated Los Angeles so much. I looked for, I didn't look for any colleges that were on the same side of the Mississippi. It was, it was a culture shock. So I, I lived in a completely different culture. So growing up in Chicago, uh, Los Angeles, and I, I lived in the Valley. So I wasn't even in LA proper. I was in the Valley. It was a wealthy area, very superficial. And it's when Valley Girl thing came about. And I was going to school with all these folks and I just couldn't get it. I, it, it was something I could not understand and it didn't feel right or everything to be so superficial. It wasn't the culture I came from and I hated it. So I just decided I need to get far, 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 far away. So at high school, like what was going on while you couldn't focus? Were you just not focused in high school or you said you did poorly? I did do poorly. It was it was family. So it was just me and my dad. My dad was in a bad place and he was struggling and he worked third shift. So I was alone all the time. We would pass each other. When I was coming home from school, sometimes he'd be going to work. And when he's coming home, I'd be getting up, going to school or he'd be asleep when I came home. And I was cooking for myself. And he was I think he was depressed um, at the time. And so I had no nothing but my buddies. We were just running around, you know, at night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> running around Chicago, you know what I mean? <laughs> and I lost focus. I got distracted doing other things. Plus, I just was unhappy. I didn't. It was a lost little young man, I guess you would say. So you didn't do any sports then. You said you, you, learned, you learned to swim as a child, but you didn't do any organized yeah. sports in high school at all. I, I tried cross country. I maybe did that for a short period of time. That didn't work out well. And I only did that because I noticed... All the, the girls in high school went after the track guys. Mm-hmm. So I wanted that. So I was like, well, it's not track season yet. So let me do cross country to try to get in shape so I can make the track team so I could get the attention, you know, the kind of thing for the, for the women, for ladies. <laughs> didn't really like running. I just did it for that. Okay. It didn't work out. I didn't. <laughs> so it didn't work out. I think I swam maybe one year in high school, one or two. I don't even remember that very much. I, I I saw a picture recently of standing around the pool with some of the other folks, but nothing really came of that. Okay. 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 Yeah. That that was, well, let me back that up. That was in Chicago. When I moved mm-hmm. to Los Angeles, 
I got on the team, the swim, the swim team. team. I became the varsity captain and was, okay. did really well. I did well competing there. But in Chicago, it was kind of – I didn't have any focus. though. So just kind of running around, did something. Went if I wanted to. Other time, didn't go. Was, so your mother got you in line in L.A.? Yeah, she did. My mother and my stepfather. She was married. So you went to college. And what did you end up going to college after leaving L.A.? Yeah, I went to school in North Carolina. So North Carolina Central, which is a historically black university in Durham, North Carolina. I went there and studied biology and French. So, yeah, I wanted to be a scientist and I wanted to go to the Pasteur Institute. So I figured I better study French because I was going to live in France. I did a study abroad in Paris and went to the Sorbonne. I actually did a program and went to the Sorbonne for a little bit in Paris. You speak fluent French? I haven't spoken French in 20 some years. <laughs> I Sometimes I'll look at it and I can read it. Mediocre, but trying to speak it, I, I have to think about the words too long. I can't. I can't process it. I'd have to spend some time learning it again. I I don't think I learned it well enough that it became second a true second language for me. I got you. You know, and and twenty years lapsed just made it all go away. So I didn't, did you enjoy your experience at HBCU? I went to FAMU. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I loved it. I loved it. Um, had a really good time. Grew up a lot. Learned a lot about me and and us. You know, as a culture and people, and and have made some fantastic friendships that still persist to this day. Some wonderful people that have done phenomenal things. Season three, we will continue the new segment called Ask the Dub. If you have any questions related to musculoskeletal injuries or musculoskeletal health, go to my website, www.weouilife.com. We love.com Click on the tab voicemail, leave your voicemail, and select messages will be aired and answered on the segment. Now, back to the show. So, you ultimately ended up with a PhD in biochemistry, and it's amazing. I did. Was that a long, uh, hard journey, or did you just love, love science? It was it was it was really hard. I mean, the PhD is really hard. But um, North Carolina State, I didn't know this at the time, but didn't had never had uh, a black, an African American earn a PhD in the history of the school. So I got admitted, and it was a fight just to get admitted. Um, I had a I had a mentor on the, somebody on the inside who fought for me and kind of pulled some of the, the curtain on some of the BS that was being trying to keep me out. And the whole time I was there, it was very hostile. I was told that I wasn't smart enough, I couldn't make it, or I couldn't get help, or the professors ignored me, that kind of stuff. It was horrible. But I did it, and it took a lot, a lot of work. And that's at the time I met my wife also, and I realized she was a troop. She would st- I didn't take holidays or anything. I worked seven days a week. Mm-hmm. So Christmas, I'm in the lab. Thanksgiving, I'm in the lab. And she would mm-hmm. come in the lab and stay with me. There are times where she spent the night in the lab with me. You know, So I was like, oh, it's, just, it's beautiful. But I, I was determined again to get it done. I wasn't going to quit. Yeah, so I, I did it, finished. And um, then went on to do a postdoctoral fellowship in Minnesota at the University of Minnesota in the medical school. Okay. And you worked as a biochem. What drugs did you um, work with? Can you tell me that you developed? Oh, yeah. I was in the lab for a while. None of the stuff that I was in the lab with, I touched, came forward. All that stuff got killed. The stuff I worked on has been in the clinical trials kind of phases. So the first hepatitis C protease inhibitor, telaprevir, I was involved with, drug called Oh my gosh, it's <laughs> it just fell right out of my head. 
tepratumumab is a monoclonal antibody for it's a rare eye disease called thyroid eye disease. Okay. Yeah, that's actually was just hit market last year, a little over a year ago. And there was nothing. This is one of those rare diseases. There was nothing that was approved for it. Uh, mm-hmm. So this is actually the first thing that's ever has been approved for these patients. So it's been phenomenal just to watch and, and hear all of the, the benefits, the good things that are happening to the patients. Another one would be, well, it's not new. There's a couple of rare diseases, but they're not necessarily new, maybe mm-hmm. relaunched or, or repurposed. So like an interferon gamma, initially we looked at it for um, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, but that didn't work. But now it does work for another rare disease called chronic granulomatous disease, which is a defect in in uh, the immune system, and it helps a lot. So I've had the chance, the choice, not the chance, but the, the choice, but the chance to work with uh, many therapies that have, have really changed some lives. So that's been wonderful. Do you still um, work with drug development now? I do. Yeah, absolutely. And you do a lot of other things. So you develop a walk, Houston Childhood Walk for Apraxia Speech. Yeah, what made you um, get involved with that? It's personal. So my, my child uh, was born with a, a disorder. It's called uh, childhood apraxia of speech. It's a genetic disorder. That's a, neuromil- a neuromuscular disorder. Uh, the best way to describe it is the, the words and the signals for sound and speech don't get translated properly through the nerves going to the mouth. So they can't speak. Or when they do speak, it comes out garbled. And so some children learn to speak rudimentary. Some develop normal speech. You just never know. And so our, our child was, was born with that. And uh, we realized that when he was about two, we didn't know if he'd speak. So we started to teach him sign language so that he would have a way to communicate. Because we noticed that, you know, as he got older, he wanted to be able, you could see the frustration as he was trying to communicate more complex things and he didn't, he couldn't do it. And it was heartbreaking. There was nothing, you know, there's very few, there varies maybe 30,000 children with this disease. And so it's very rare. And in a big city like Houston, I couldn't really find very many people that have children or professionals that were experienced in working with kids with this. So I decided to create a walk to try to bring the parents and the kids together and the professionals. And so I just started it. Um, There was a foundation out of Pittsburgh and they had done it in Pittsburgh. So I decided to start one in Houston. And there were eight of us that started it the first year and raised a couple dollars and it just grew. And I did it for about nine years and it got big enough where I couldn't do it myself anymore. And the actual Apraxia Foundation, the big Mm-hmm. Foundation decided to create a regional office for Houston because oh, it had become wonderful. big enough. Okay. Um, and they put up they put a picture of me and my son at the entrance of their their headquarters because we had done. I mean, we really put our heart and soul into it and mm-hmm. brought a lot of families together. That's really what meant the most to me is the kids to be able to meet other kids that were having similar issues as them, so they didn't feel they so feel isolated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they feel alone. The parents, I remember what it felt like having this and not knowing what to do, feeling totally helpless, and how horrible that is. Being able to talk with other parents, having spent five, six years helping my child go through it, meeting younger parents whose children, they're just diagnosed in the, the panic and just talking to them about how how things can be better, that it's scary now, but this is some steps you can take to help them along their path was the whole point, right? Uh, not to, people have to have to go through that alone. So I want to go back to your, your first race. You started training. Tell me about that experience, your first Olympic triathlon. I was okay with the Olympic distance by then. So the the sprints are where I fell apart. The Olympic was probably eight months after I started training. Okay. And one thing I've learned is is I learned to swim a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And the techniques for swimming were quite different than they are now. 
pool racing is very different than open water distance swimming too, technique. So I had horrible technique for open water. I was learning that. I didn't have a bike. I, I had, I bought a, a road bike, an REI road bike. So I was able to ride. I didn't have to ride the mountain bike anymore. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was so much better. So much better. I still fell. Lighter, lot lighter. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot lighter. But but again, I made a mistake. So I got this. I got clips. It was the first time I had clips. I didn't ride the bike until the race. Oh, no. So, yeah. This <laughs> <laughs> first, time, first time I rode my bike, my road bike was in the race. And, of course, I fell when I tried to get off at the finish line. Because you have to get off at the... Yeah, the dismount line. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't dismount. I just fell over. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I fell when I did my my Ironman. It had nothing to do with dismount. <laughs> I dropped my helmet, then I dropped, oh. and I cracked my visor, and I dropped my water bottle, and I dropped my bike. How'd you drop your helmet? I was tired to hurry up and get my helmet off and hurry up you know i was trying to get this quick transition and then i wound up falling and <laughs> but my transition time still wound up being oh that's good the the i think the, the toughest thing at that point was i had i had developed the ability to run six miles I still slow my pace was probably like 13 or 14 per minutes per mile which was fine for me it was faster than i was doing before when i started i was like 16 17 and then my bike i don't know what it was probably average 16 15 16 miles an hour and uh, the swim was fine, but I didn't know about nutrition. Yeah, that's so a big. Um, I oh my goodness, yes. that has been the most difficult thing is learning how to eat. At that time, that was the most difficult thing. I didn't know that I didn't know how to eat. I thought, well, you just eat, you know, yeah. you just eat and, and you're fine. Drink mm-hmm. some water, and you know, I did. I didn't know, and so I I crashed, not literally, but bonked. I bonked in the, really in the bike. Badly. When in the race did you crash? In the bike, I bonked. So it was a two laps. Um, where I was, it was in a, a city called Katy. It was two laps. So the first lap, I felt strong. I was great. And then all of a sudden, I felt like lead. Like my legs were full of lead. I had no energy. And I pushed through the, the second lap and then couldn't run. I got off. My legs cramped up to the point where if I stopped walking, they cramped. If I tried to stretch them, they cramped. If I pulled back, it was, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, it was no relief. And I just you know kind of shuffled along. But I tried to run. I might have run maybe quarter mile and then i would walk run walk run by i think what is that six miles i think it took me two hours two and a half hours to do the the run course my they were like packing up packing up the race by the time i got to the end and my wife was like i don't think i was last no i was pretty close but i wasn't last and they were they were my wife was getting worse like i was about to start looking for the ambulance like you should have been here by now i don't know what happened I was like, oh, I'm fine. I just had to walk and I didn't know what to do, what else to do. I couldn't run. I had no more energy. I was done for the next two days after that. But then I realized, again, my trainer had been telling me I was not eating well. And of course, I thought I knew everything by then. You know, I've mm-hmm. been training for six months. I know how to do this now. <laughs> so did you come up with a how to trial and error as far as nutrition or did you get a nutritionist or did your um, coach kind of? I got a nutritionist who uh, was very has been very patient with me. Because I, <laughs> I'm hard headed, and I tell you, um, so she's she helped me a lot, uh, and I, I did some through work. They had this uh, this program, like you know, they have health benefits and things, and they had this thing called, I forgot what it's called now, but it was a it just taught you the basics about eating and how the brain works mm-hmm. with regard to thirst and hunger and satiety mm-hmm. and those kind of signals. And the, the one of the first things I learned and realized was that I was mistaking thirst for hunger a lot. Mm. So I was eating 
when I was really getting signals for thirst. And once I realized that and drank a lot more water, I didn't dehydrate nearly as much. So I felt a lot better and I didn't eat as much. Um, also learned about the lag time between eating and actually getting the signal to feel satiated. Mm-hmm. So I slowed down, you know, I slowed down how much I ate and that made a difference on how much I ended up consuming before I felt full. So it's just been a stepwise progress of relearning so many things that, you know, I just thought were basic knowledge that I didn't have. I did an Olympic try, the first one since cancer surgery over Memorial Day. And again, I was like, well, it's a short race. I don't need to worry about, you know, I, I just drink some water and, and I won't worry about eating and drinking and hydration and stuff. And I felt good. I, and I decided to push it, try to do my best mm-hmm. on this race. I had never done that. Crash. I, I did on the run. I, I bonked really bad. I mean, to the point where I was getting tunnel vision mm. while I ran and getting lightheaded. I scared myself. Didn't eat properly going into it either. Well, this is podcast I listened to, a question iron. I don't know if you listened to it. They were talking about how like people who have like heat stroke and heat exhaustion is usually like shorter races, 5Ks and stuff versus longer. Because people go out like at 110% and they kind of think they don't need nutrition. Versus like longer is usually like you're more you're more paced and you and yes. people are a little bit better about drinking, but it's mostly doing shorter races. So I thought that was interesting. Well, I fell right into that category then. That's exactly what it was. To the point where when I finished, I went to give somebody a, a fist bump as I cro- you know after I came across the finish line and felt like I was going to pass out. So I just mm-hmm. sat down right there and I, I tried to give up for like 25, 30 minutes. I couldn't get up. I just had to sit there and I could bring me some more water. Give me a give me a coke. Give me mm-hmm. you know. Finally, I was able to get up, but I, I realized I was severely dehydrated. So, so what did your your coach say after that one? He told me. <laughs> he told me I needed to recover. Don't don't do anything for a couple of days. Focus on eating, hydrating, getting your electrolytes. Stay out of the heat. Don't train. If you do something, don't do it in the heat because that's just going to add to it. Yeah. So allow yourself at least four days, five days to recover because you you pushed yourself too far. So he's very, very um, cautious about overtraining and putting myself at risk for injury or illness. Do you listen to? I do. Yeah, I just don't listen ahead of time where, (laughs) you know, (laughs) the nutrition or, you know, the training or staying good and outside of my training zones, those kind of things. So it's more he's protecting me from myself after the fact is what he's doing. Okay, I got you. You mentioned you a cancer diagnosis. Can you tell me about your cancer diagnosis? And like, you got diagnosed right, right before Ironman Florida. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. That's right. So men should should get screened. You know, I'm 50 now. So men should start black men, particularly if they have a his a risk or his family history in their 40s or 40. And I didn't have a family history of it that I was aware of. And I felt good. I was training and racing. So I was like, ah, I'm fine. I, you know, I wasn't getting my annual physicals. And I just, I, I had been maybe three or four years since I had gotten one. And then, so I decided to get one and PSA was elevated. And the doc was like, look, this is like double what it was the last time you got a test, which was several years ago. So I did it again. And the number came down a little bit. And, you know, like with blood tests, there's limits, right? Upper limit, lower limit. And it was just over it was quite. A, well, I thought it was just over four is the is the limit for the PSA four nanograms mm-hmm. per mil, and it was like five point six. Looking back, it's pretty bad, but at my age, so she said, "Well, it's a little, it's above the line. Let's do it again." When it came back, it was below four. Mm-hmm. So she was like, "Well, it's higher than it was, but it's under the limit, so it's mm-hmm. in the normal normal range." range. She said, "But." I want you to go see a urologist because this is not my specialty. I don't really know if I'm interpreting this right. I said, all right. So I saw it's been COVID hit. So this was in February. 
of okay. 2020. 20. Yeah. And then COVID hit. So every, you know, everybody closed down the clinics and stuff other than emergency. So I was like, ah, I'm fine. I'll wait. So I got to see him in September. Yeah. I finally got in. He saw the number. First thing he said when he saw me was, holy shit, what took you so long to get in here? Really? What was the number then? Do you remember? It was, he saw the, the higher number. It was 5.6, but I was, yeah, I was still in my 40. I was 40 or well, 49, but he's like, you're a black man. You're not even 50. And this number, you should be undetectable. You're at 5.6. Okay. So he said, I'm going to have to do a biopsy. That was the scariest thing of all for me. It was, it was, it was the thought of a biopsy, you know, putting a probe and clipping tissue out uh, from a rectum. Mm-hmm. Ariel did that. The biopsy came back. It was significant uh, amounts of cancer in, in uh, two of the areas of mm-hmm. the prostate. And just the best solution because of my age was surgery. You know, there's mm-hmm. lots of ways you can treat it, but mm-hmm. they say that if you don't get rid of it, um, you're going to have to deal with it at some point. Right now, it looks like it's all contained. It hasn't mm-hmm. doesn't look like it has spread. So if you wait, your chance of spreading is going to get worse, of course. Mm-hmm. But um, also what you could do is radiation that could get rid of it, or you can do surgery and have the risk of incontinence and um, erectile dysfunction. But the thing with radiation, you don't have that, but it, it, it destroys or weakens tissue surrounding prostate. And so if you live longer, you have a greater chance of side effects and, and morbidity from those, from the radiation over time. And being so young, um, I decided I'll just go for the surgery, get it out of the way. I was scared to death of incontinence and, and erectile dysfunction. I'm like, man, I'm just not 50. And I'm like, lose these functions. I do not want to be a pissy old man that can't get it up, you know? <laughs> was, I'm telling you, that was scared me to death. <laughs> but I said, you know, living is, is more important to being here for my son and with my wife. And there's lots to live for. And you found this right before you, you raced? How did you kind of like deal with the thought of that? And then you still had to train for this race. Like, did you ever think about canceling it and doing it right away? Or you like, no, okay. No, no, I didn't think about doing it right. So I got a couple of second opinions and decided, you know, there's a book called Surviving Prostate Cancer by a guy named uh, Patrick Walsh, who's like created the nerve sparing technique for taking out the prostate and preserving the nerves. So preserving function, bladder function, erectile function. And um, I decided I needed to go talk to him. Okay. Uh, when I got the diagnosis, so I got a, a, went and saw him and he's like, yep, this is the best thing. So I kind of went into science, the science mode of this is what is, doesn't mm-hmm. matter how I feel about it. This is mm-hmm. what is, mm-hmm. what do I need to do to get the best outcome? And I decided surgery was it. Let me find the best surgeon I can in the world and just get it done sooner than later. I, I knew it didn't need to be done right away. So the surgeons were telling me, this is a slow growing cancer. You can wait until next May if you want to. I was like, that makes no sense at all, because now I'm going to have this on my head all, you know, maybe fine. I got a risk of, of leaving, but I got this emotional bag. So I decided I would just do it after the race. There was no reason to cancel the race. I felt fine. I didn't have any symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, just I only knew because the blood work and then the subsequent prostate uh, biopsy. So I, I, I didn't even think about it uh, other than figuring out, you know, where to do surgery, how to schedule surgery, what I needed to do to prepare for surgery and afterwards. It was more of a process thing at that point. There wasn't okay. a whole lot of emotion. There was the fear of losing those functions, mm-hmm. but there's nothing I could do about it. So it was just the fear. It didn't paralyze me. And mm-hmm. it benefited me. There were two things. Training for Ironman benefited me because I was physically healthier than I had ever been. Mm-hmm. And at my first race, I was 100% grateful being able to be there. I had an appreciation for what my body could do because I had this, this real-time 
even life emergency, right, mm-hmm. of, of cancer that mm-hmm. possibly metastatic. It didn't mm-hmm. appear so, but we didn't know yet. You don't know until you know. We didn't know. So in the race, I felt absolutely at peace. I was just grateful that I was there and able to do it. I'm so happy. That was a gift. So how was the race? The race was phenomenal. I had a good time down the floor. The weather was perfect. It was a little windy on the. the swell, uh, my heart was was it choppy? But that really probably doesn't scare you. It wasn't choppy. It was swells. So oh, it wasn't it wasn't like waves cresting and crashing on you. It was just really up and down. So people were getting seasick. But if you could time your breathing with the swell, you could see, you could sight nicely, and you could breathe. And what I really liked about the swim was I remember the moment when the pros were doing. So it was a two lap. So that okay. is an out and back. And you, you swim out, do a half iron, get back on the beach and then start again. And when we, I was doing the first lap, the pros had already been in and they were going around their second lap. I watched them pass and I just thought it was so beautiful to watch them. They were in, you know, in their V pattern mm-hmm. together. Um, and I could see just the strokes and the speed that they were moving. I just, I loved watching it. Mm-hmm. And imagine that I could swim that way, you know, as I was swimming, I was just kind of fantasizing about being able to swim like that. It made the time pass a little better, you know, make it more enjoyable. Um, then the bike was was tough because the first probably 30 miles was wind in our face. But I still enjoyed it. I had, I was fortunate again. I had a coach who's really good. He gave me targets. So for the swim, it was power. certain effort, power on the bike. I, he said, this is your power. Don't go over this power. Try to stay as close as you can because you can maintain this for six hours, six and a half hours and still be able to run. And I did. So I, I had a good time. I was able, my wife and my son was there. So they would drive around to different parts of the, the um, course and see me and yell at me and, you know, say hi. There weren't a lot of people because of COVID. You've done it. A lot of folks say that for Ironman, your first Ironman, the most emotional time is when you come along that red carpet right at the finish line and it all just comes down crashing on you. For me, that's not what happened. What mm-hmm. happened was at the beginning when I was lined up on the beach at the swim mm-hmm. and the sun was coming up and I was watching people go in the water. Mm-hmm. It hit me that I'm here. Mm-hmm. I am doing this with all of these people who have all of the stories and all of their own reasons. And I'm watching them go in the water. And I, I just thought about all that I'd been through. And it, I was in this moment and I started crying, you know, just tears. I was on the beach and the tears mm-hmm. coming down, but it was, it was happy. Okay. And, um, and then I just got in and, and the rest of the day was, was wonderful to me to the point where I'm running, we're doing the marathon and I'm Dog dead tired. Oh, mm-hmm. so, so tired. <laughs> but I'm still smiling for some reason. I don't even realize it. I, I could. I remember hearing people saying, "Oh my God, he's still smiling." <laughs> <laughs> the sun had gone down. He'd come up and gone back down. Probably at mile twelve, fifteen. I don't know anymore. But I think it, the energy, because even when I'm like spectating. It's like the people that smile and you want to cheer for them. I mean, not that you don't mm. want to cheer for the people who are, but it just gives you energy. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was, I loved it. I loved it. So when you, when you crossed the red carpet, did you, you had another, you had to have the, it wasn't the, 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 the feeling, but, and it calls your name and says, you are an Ironman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, Mike Riley was there. So I had Mike Riley say my name. That, that was like, oh, I'm good now. I was really happy when I was there. I remember those steps walking up to it, just clenching my fist going, yes, yes. And I heard him say, yes, he said it with me. (laughs) (laughs) I must have said it so many times. He was like, okay, yes, Yes. man. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so it was was all that I asked for. I just had to say that. And it's addictive, right? So now 
my goal is not to finish an Ironman. I know I can do that. It's I'm thinking times, okay. you know, what, how much time can I drop or what can I do with the bike in or what can I do the run and that kind of thing. After your Ironman, like how long after that did you actually have surgery? Three and a half weeks. I went to Baltimore, went to Hopkins and did it. And this is again, Ironman spirit. So it was a laparoscopic surgery. I remember waking up from anesthesia in, in PACU, or the, the post-anesthesia mm-hmm. uh, area, woke up, and I immediately thought to myself, I got to get up. And so I told the nurse, I got to get up. I got to mm-hmm. go to the bathroom. She says, you don't have to go to the bathroom. I said, I got to go to the bathroom. She says, no. I said, I'm getting up. Are you going to help me? I said, I'm getting up. Are you going to help me? And she was maybe five feet tall, 120 pounds. And she just looked at me and said, yes, but please don't fall <laughs> because you know, I'm big guy. And uh, I said, I'm not dizzy. I just, I got to move. I just got to move my body. Mm-hmm. And so she walked with me. We walked around. I went to the bathroom. I didn't have to use the bathroom, but I just, I thought I did. It was just, you know, the gas, it's the stuff from the surgery. And so I went back and I was uncomfortable and they took me to my room. And this is funny to me looking back at it now. I got back up again and I just walked the halls. And I remember walking, it was some hallway I walked and I saw somebody had a sign on the wall and it said 11 laps, 11, no, 11 laps, one mile. And my first thought was, I'm going to do a 5K before the sun comes up. I just, I just walked around a hospital all night long really? till I could, yeah, I just counted my laps and the nurses. And I remember the, the look of horror on their faces, but they told me. <laughs> Because <laughs> you know, I, I've got a, I got a a, um, a bag of <laughs> a catheter yeah. and a bag, and I'm walking with my IV pole. Yeah. I probably look like I'm half dead because <laughs> you know I'm I'm maybe six hours out of surgery, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm walking. I just, it just looks they're looking up at me, and it's just shaking their heads. One of them said, "Would you you you, you want to sit down?" I was like, "No, I'm, I'm not going to sit down. I'm good." Um, and the problem was, I only wanted to walk. I, I knew that getting my GI system, I had to move my body. Just sitting there was not going to do it. So I didn't take any painkillers. I didn't want any opiates. None. None. I didn't. I didn't want to. For one thing, I wanted to experience the whole thing. I said, I, "I'm only going through this once. I'm going to experience all of it." But also, I know that the narcotics will slow my GI system down. Yeah. I didn't want that. So I said, "I'll walk, and that'll keep it going." And I knew the pain was temporary. I trained Ironman, right? This is a, the pain is temporary. And it, it's just the mentality that gets mm-hmm. ingrained. I didn't think this is Ironman mentality. It's just what came up. Yeah, this mm-hmm. pain is temporary. I can do this. This is what I need to do. Mm-hmm. So I did. And then the, the surgeon texted me. He says, okay, man, I hear that you're Superman on the floor. You don't, you, you don't even have to stay. You can go home if you want to. Mm-hmm. Instead of staying the night, I was like, no, nah, I'm not. Uh, no way. I said, first of all, if anything goes wrong, I need to be here so you can fix it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going back to the hotel. So the ambulance got to get me in and or going back to Houston. They were like, you can go home. You can fly back home. I said, no, I'm going to be at the hotel for about four or five days. Just in case it goes back. You know what you did. If it needs to be fixed or anything, I'm coming back here. You can do it. I'm not having somebody in Houston have to figure out what happened Mm -hmm. or what's going on. So I stayed. But I so I stayed overnight and I did it and I did my 5K and I was happy. So what other type of treatment did you other than the uh, surgery? Did you have to have any other treatment post-stop? Just catheter for two weeks. So I came home with a catheter and that was miserable walking around. So I was just go out for walks. Every day, just to try to keep moving until I could get that out. 
But I didn't have any other treatment, just surveillance at this point. So they took lymph nodes and pathology said it doesn't look like it's spread at all. So I'll just do uh, surveillance every three months for the next two years and then spread it out. It'll, it'll get you know less frequent after that for about five years. And I just have to say last week I had my second test, blood test, and it came back negative. So it's still, still undetectable. So when after surgery did you kind of start? I guess, training, even though you walked to 5K in the post-op? Actually, as soon as I got home, I started going out and walking. I knew I couldn't run or ride my bike or swim. So I started walking every day. I started with a mile, and every day I went a little bit further and I built it up. And then I have a training buddy who I trained for Ironman Florida with. She was still training, so I would go out to the park with her, and I would walk, and she would run. And, you know, she'd turn around every now and then, just check on me kind of stuff. Um, and I would get longer distances doing that because she'd be out for an hour or two. And then I got to the point where I could walk faster or I would try to run a little bit too soon. So I would hurt myself and I had to stop. But I would still walk. I just mm-hmm. remind me I had to walk a little bit more and it would piss my wife off. <laughs> or she would get so mad at me. <laughs> yeah. um, and then I got to the point where I could jog for a short period of time. And then it just got longer and longer. I didn't try to ride a bike for two months. Okay. I didn't want to sit on the perineum at all. I was afraid to do that for till the end of January. So the, the surgery was at the beginning of December. I didn't sit on the bike till the end of January. And how was that first bike? It was really uncomfortable. <laughs> oh, my God. I ended up getting an, another kind of saddle. It's called a bi-saddle mm-hmm. where you can adjust the, the seat. Both sides are independent. It's, mm-hmm. it's in two, two leaps, and you can move them closer and further apart along the length, the axis of the two sides, and you can move them up and down independent. Interesting. I I haven't heard of that one because I had issues with my saddle, but it's it's interesting. I went to these two bike fitters and this one guy, he got basically zip ties and moved it together. And that was, that's, that fixed it perfectly. Zip ties. Ah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's hey. I'm like, hey, it worked. it's been working for a while. <laughs> I enjoy it. But the seat, I mean, so by saddle, B-I-S-A-D-D-L-E is um, a very adjustable saddle. I find it very comfortable. Okay. So I put one on my road bike and I, I have one on my tri bike. So do you train with both your road and tri? No, I just got the, the road. It's a gravel bike, actually. So oh. I wanted to, I only had the tri. Um, I got rid of the the road bike, the REI road bike that I had. Okay. I got rid of that when I got my tri bike. I really like the tri bike. What's your tri bike? It's a Quintana Roo QR, QR4. And I really like that. So, but I... I like riding in groups every now and then. I generally don't like to ride in a group, but every now and then I, I want to ride in a group with folks and kind of go fast and just learn bike handling. You know, it's it's another set of skills. It's fun. I realize I can't do that on my tri bike. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. Yeah, and they don't want they didn't want me there. Can't break. You can't handle. Yeah, so I bought a um, a gravel bike because I want to do a little bit of uh, off road just for fun and still be able to put some aero wheels or some road wheels on it and ride. Have it comfortable enough to ride with groups for a while. You know. 50, 50 miles or something like that, 40, 50 mile rides. So I did that. I bought a gravel bike and I went out gravel riding last weekend and had a great time. Your last race, you well, it took you six months to do, you did an Olympic, right? I did. I did. And you PR, yeah. right? Like, I PR by 40 minutes. And that's amazing. After surgery. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So I've come back, you know, I was smart again, listening to my trainer and building back up to that. And, and being confident. So I've, I've worked on lots of different things, but one of the things that I worked on was pushing through my fear of pushing myself hard. So I, I thought about it in races in the past, I only went probably like 70, 
because I was afraid I would run out of energy. Yeah, I want to crash. But I decided that I can't, I can't keep doing that, you know, and really grow. So I have to face those fears. It's just the fact that it's a fear. Whether I crash or not doesn't matter. I need to not be governed by fear, really, is what it was. And so he said, let it loose. <laughs> I asked him, I said, what kind of paces and stuff should I look for on the bike and on the swim? He said, you should be redlining. If you throw up, if you're not huffing and puffing, you're not going fast enough. If you throw up when you cross the finish line, you've done it right. And that made me think of the interview you had with Sika Henry um, a few weeks back. She said that, you know, she did a race and, and she threw, she was throwing up all over after her. And you're like, did you always do it? She said, I've never done that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I was like, okay, that's, that's what competitors do. <laughs> yeah. Push it till you just leave it all out there. Literally. <sighs> I didn't throw up. I didn't throw up, but I did push myself. I pushed myself hard, but I wasn't prepared. I, like I said, I dehydrated. I, I was, it was primarily mostly dehydration. How hot was it? 90. It was in the 90s, I think. 90. So even when it's hot, like it'd be 100 degrees here and it's nothing like Mississippi heat. The humidity no. is what kills That's you. sticky hot in Mississippi yeah. heat. Sticky hot. Ooh, that's tough. So yeah, those would be my things is, is just dream big and, and just start. Don't, you don't even have to know how you're going to get there. Just you, you just start moving in that direction and you you'll get there sooner than you think. And it's the journey that really is the, the joy. The magic happens in the process of getting That's there. true. And sometimes it's like you, because I used to, one of my first couple, I was stressing about the race and this and that. And I'm like, just chill out, enjoy the process. And like now, even like, I don't know if I'm going to make my races, but I enjoy this. So I'm just like, I need to just enjoy what I can do and do what I can. Yeah. And not worry about it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I like, I like that you're doing these podcasts and talking to, you know, all these athletes um, and just highlighting their voices and, Hearing their stories is a lot of fun for me. So I'm sure there's a lot of other people doing it. So I'm, I'm glad you're doing this. Well, thank you. I, and thank you for agreeing to join me today. Yeah, my pleasure. Happy to talk anytime. I talk all day long. <laughs> <laughs> that wraps up this episode of Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. Thank you for tuning in. If you already haven't, please download Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast on Apple, Spotify, or however you listen to your favorite podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, or possible show topics, please email Running is Cheaper Than Therapy, OLB, Omaha Love Brown. Again, that's Running is Cheaper Than Therapy, Omaha Love Brown at gmail.com. I also can be reached via Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Handle We Life, We Love. Oh, you are life. Oh, you are love. Thank you, and please tune in again. <laughs>